Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're continuing on with part two of our interview with Carol Meredith, who is a great geneticist and professor emerita at University of California, Davis. In this episode, she's going to be talking about the search for Zinfandel. One of the big discoveries in your research was the identification of Zinfandel. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. Our work with Zinfandel was a little bit different than the work we did with other varieties. When we first got started with this work, our first big kind of landmark discovery was the parents of Cabernet Sauvignon, and that was in 1997. But then we went on and we found the parents of Chardonnay, the parents of Gamay, the parents of Syrah, and they were all French grapes. And so we did a lot of that. I can't remember how many varieties we found the parents for, but a lot. But then some years later, the question had been nagging at me for many years, and that was, where did Zinfandel come from? Because Zinfandel had long been thought of as California's grape. No other country in the world grew Zinfandel. California had made Zinfandel. It had become, it it had a long history in California dating back to the middle of the 19th century. And so people just kind of assumed that it was a native California grape. But we know that's not true because any great biologist looking at Zinfandel vines will look at it and know that it is a Vitus vinifera, which is a European grape. So there's no way that Zinfandel could be a native California grape. We have native California grapes, but they don't look anything like Zinfandel. So we knew it was a European grape, but nobody seemed to know where in Europe it came from. Part of the problem was the name, you know, with Cabernet Sauvignon, with Chardonnay, with Sangiovese, things like that. We still use the European name. So it was very, very easy to connect the grape to a place. Yeah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Bordeaux, you know, and Sangiovese. Yeah, that's Italy. But with Zinfandel, the name was of no help at all. The other thing that was a problem was that it was apparently not from one of the major European grape growing areas. Otherwise, somebody would have recognized it already. You know, when we had a French expert coming over to tell us if this was Pinot Blanc or Malone or Chardonnay, that expert would have said, oh, yeah, and that, that's infidel, yeah, that's French. But in none of these experts from Germany, from Italy, from Portugal, Spain, France, none of them had ever been able to recognize Zinfandel as one of their own. So that told not just me, but it had told people for a long time that this must mean that Zinfandel comes from a lesser known European wine region. And since we already knew all the Western European wine regions pretty well, it probably comes from someplace a little further to the east. And so a lot of folks had kind of been looking to places like Hungary and the Balkans and even into some of the other countries, you know, Bulgaria, Romania, we've been looking at those areas, but we didn't have a lot of contact with those countries. Technically, we didn't have collaborations. Nobody knew each other. Some people had already suspected that Zinfandel might come from what is now called Croatia, but what used to be Yugoslavia prior to its breakup in, I think it was 1991. 
And that has long been a wine producing area. It's been producing wine for as long as anybody has, you know, for thousands of years. The ancient name was Dalmatia. And so a lot of people had suspected that maybe Gryffindor came from there. One of the reasons that I suspected it is because in the 1970s, somebody recognized a grape in Italy, Primitivo, and said, wait a second, that looks like Zinfandel. That was a former colleague of mine at Davis named Austin Goheen. He was a plant disease expert, and he was in Bari, Italy, attending a conference on grapevine diseases, and he was having a glass of wine with an Italian expert on grapevine diseases, and Austin had a sip of the wine and said, wait a second, what is this? And the guy says, just a local red. And he says, but it tastes like Zinfandel. And he says, oh, just a local red. Austin says, well, can you show me the vines? And the other guy says, yes, tomorrow we'll go look at the vines. So they go look at the vines, and the vines were called Primitivo, and it was widely grown in the Bari area, which is in the heel of Italy's boot in Apulia. And Austin looked at it and said, well, you know, it looks just like Zinfandel. Can I take some cuttings back to Davis and compare it there? And so he did that. He planted cuttings at the UC Davis Vineyard. Zinfandel Primitivo side by side that, you know, they, they looked the same, but they didn't have the tools then to confirm that they really were the same as opposed to being just two very, very physically similar varieties. And so later on, as some tools did begin to emerge, first some other people and then later my group were able to confirm that, yes, Primitivo and Zinfandel are the same thing. They're just two names for the same variety. And so they must have a common origin. The initial supposition was that that origin was Italy, but the Italian scientists said, no, it's not Italian. It's only been here for a couple of hundred years, which is nothing in Italian history. It's only been here for a couple of hundred years, and we've got documentation that suggests that it came from across the Adriatic from the coast of what was then Dalmatia. And so that was kind of what got people looking towards present-day Croatia as a possible home for Zinfandel. The most commonly grown red wine grape on the coast of Croatia is a grape called Plavac Mali, and that tastes kind of similar to Zinfandel, and the vines look a little similar to Zinfandel. But when we and others got a chance to actually make the comparison, we had some Plavitz Mali growing in our university vineyard. They weren't the same, but our DNA tools told us that they were likely very closely related, you know, maybe in a family way. And so that really got us excited about going to look more closely in Croatia. But I didn't know anybody in Croatia, you know. The only person I knew who knew anybody in Croatia was Mike Gergic at Gergic Hills, who is Croatian. And he knew some people in Croatia, but he didn't know the right people in Croatia. He put me in touch with some of them and they tried to help, but it really was, we were kind of at a dead end. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, I need to go to Croatia, but you can't just land in Zagreb and then, you know, go tromping around in vineyards. You really have to have a collaborator who's a scientific collaborator in that country. So I was kind of stumped, but then in 19, I guess it was December, 1997, I got an email from a guy named Ivan Pejic at the University of Zagreb, and he was asking for my help. He said, we've heard that you're doing some interesting DNA work on grapes, and we really want to understand all of our Croatian grapes better. You think you could help us understand our Croatian grapes? 
And I said, well, yes, I certainly would be very willing to help you if you will help me find Zinfandel, because I think it comes from Croatia. And they said, well, what's Zinfandel? Because, of course, they've never heard the name because it's a name that's only used in the United States. And so I explained to them that Zinfandel was a pretty important grape and that we thought it came from Croatia and that if I helped them with all their other grapes, maybe in the course of doing that, we would find Zinfandel. And so I went over there and that was the beginning of a very fruitful collaboration. I went over there several times. We wandered around in vineyards. We gathered samples and they did not yet have the technology at the University of Zagreb to do the DNA analysis themselves. I mean, they certainly understood what we were doing, but they weren't geared up to do it themselves. So I would bring all the samples back to Davis and we would analyze it. And then also they started doing their own vineyard explorations and just sending me samples by FedEx. They'd send an email saying, you know, we got 14 samples coming by FedEx, should arrive Wednesday, and the samples would arrive and we would do the DNA analysis and we would say, sorry, you know, it's not. And then a couple of weeks later, they'd send some more samples and they'd say, you know, boy, I think number 25, that sure looked like Zinfandel to us because by this time they had learned, you know, that some of the subtle distinctions of Zinfandel. They say, we sure think that one is Infidel. And we'd say, well, sorry, it's not. And so it was kind of like the boy who cried wolf. You know, they kept sending us these batches of samples. In the meantime, we were finding out a lot about all these traditional Croatian varieties. And what they really wanted to know was what did they have that was different? What should they really concentrate on trying to preserve? Because in an era of globalization, they had Italian grapevine nurseries trying to convince all the Croatian grape growers to plant Merlot and Chardonnay and rip out all their old traditional stuff. And so my collaborators, Ivan Pejic and Eddie Malatic, and their colleagues were very, very concerned that they might lose their kind of their heritage, their viticultural heritage. And that's why they wanted to know what do we have that's different? What do we have that didn't come from Italy, didn't come from France, didn't come from Hungary? What do we have that's ours and that we should really try hard to preserve somewhere? And so every time they sent us samples, we were coming up with more and more of those. And we did find a couple that turned out to be something French, and so they had less interest. But we still weren't finding Sinfandel until after three years, they sent another email. Oh, we think number 130. We think this one's really it. And I'm, yeah, yeah, you know, I've heard this before. And we analyzed the DNA. It was it. We had finally found it. After three years of searching, we had finally found Zinfandel in Croatia. Wow. It was in a mixed vineyard that was mostly Plavitz Mali, but that had a few other things mixed in. And it turned out there were nine of these Zinfandel vines. They were going by their local name, which is Cyrilianic Kastelanski, which simply means the local red of Kastela, which is the town that the vineyard was located in. And chances are that they could have been ripped out at any time. So we determined that these nine vines were Zinfandel, and going by this local name. And then a few months later, Yvonne and Eddie also found another vine growing further inland. This first vine was right on the coast, right, right along the coast of Croatia, just north of the city of Split. So they found another one inland. And then they found there was a natural history museum in Split where there's a large collection of dried herbarium samples of all the grape varieties that were being grown in that part of Croatia around 1900. 
There was a very far-sighted scientist at the time who had collected samples and preserved them. You couldn't preserve the fruit, of course, because you can't dry that between pieces of blotter paper, but the leaves you can. They will dry down and be preserved very well. And so Yvonne and Eddie looked through that collection, and they came across one of the herbarium specimens labeled tribidrag. Well, the one example that they had found inland was called Pribidrag. That was its local name. And they're like Pribidrag, Tribidrag. And they looked at this sample of Tribidrag, and boy, the leaves looked just like Serlietta Castellansky and Pribidrag and Zinfandel. I mean, it was the same thing. But this was back in 2001. And none of us knew how to get DNA out of what was a dead grape leaf that had been sitting in a museum for 100 years, you know. And so we all presumed that Tribidrag was Zinfandel and that it was being grown in the region 100 years ago. And so we actually started looking into the history of that. And we got a Croatian historian involved and he looked into the history and found out that Tribidrag was a really, really important grape as far back as the 1300s. It was very important in trade. It was mentioned in trade records, in tax records, in wills, in land records. And to mention a variety by name that long ago means that it must have been pretty important. But we couldn't prove that it was infidel. We, you know, it, was, it, it sure looked like it, walked like a duck, talked like a duck, but how could we prove it? Well, 10 years later, a Croatian research group that specializes in archaeological sites, they became known to Ivan and Eddie for their work on pieces of wood in archaeological sites. And Ivan and Eddie said, would you want to take a crack at some dead grape leaves in the museum and split? And they said, sure. And so they went to the museum and said to the curator, do you mind if we cut some holes in, in the specimen in your collection? And the guy actually said, okay. And I've got a photograph of these leaves. They used a paper punch. I've got a photograph of these leaves with holes punched out. And this Croatian archaeology group, they took those little leaf discs back to their laboratory, they got DNA out of them. And then they handed that DNA over to Yvonne and Eddie, who by now knew how to do the DNA analysis themselves at the University of Zagreb. They analyzed it. It was infidel. So after having found the vines, you know, back in 2001, it was 10 years until we could actually prove that the museum specimen, the ancient tribidrag, was actually Zinfandel. So that kind of, that brought the whole story to completion. And one of the most important aspects of that story, I think, is that it proves that Zinfandel is an ancient grape, that back in 1300, it was already a very important grape. It was mentioned in trade records in the city-state of Venice. So, you know, it was internationally known, not just known on the Dalmatian coast. So it goes back at least to 1300. And if it was important in 1300, it probably had been around for a few hundred years longer than that. And so I told you that Cabernet Sauvignon was born around 1700, right? So who's your noble grape now, huh? (laughs) Your memory for all those details, obviously you've told that story a few times, but your memory for all those details is amazing. Peter and I were remarking about how detailed it was. Wow, that's super interesting. And I love the point about it being a noble grape because it has, it's been around for so long. You know, bring it to modern times, for your own wine brand, La Jean Meredith, you call your own Zinfandel the historic name Tribidrag. Right. And I'm, that you've discovered. And is that from TTB rules? Are you allowed to just have Tribidrag on the label? Is it an acknowledged synonym? Tribidrag is not an approved variety name for American wine. 
But TTB, when you're getting a label approved, you can choose a varietal name from their long, long list, which includes Zinfandel, which also includes Primitivo as a separate variety. So TTB doesn't recognize that they're the same variety. That's another story. That's a battle that I'm going to fight one of these days. But Tripodrag is not on that list. But another option that you have is to not use a varietal name. So you could be like Schaefer's Hillside Select, or you could be like Opus One, or you could be like Tripodrag. So that's called a fanciful name. If you opt for something that's not a varietal name, then you can choose a fanciful name. And if you do that, then you have to choose a generic category like red wine, white wine, sparkling wine, dessert wine. So if you look at our label, it says red wine down there. So we got Tribadrag approved as a fanciful name. And I think I was kind of surprised that uh, nobody Googled it. Nobody at TTB Googled it to figure out <laughs> that it is a grape that's unapproved grape variety name. In the meantime, Ridge also wanted to call that they have Zinfandel vines that they actually grew from cuttings that they got from Croatia. And, wow. and they wanted to call it Tripodrag. And so they contacted me and they assumed that I had trademarked it, you know, which I had not done. But they said, well, how did you ever get that name approved? And I explained it to them. And so they said, OK, we're going to do the same thing. So now Ridge also has a Tribodrag. And Ridge is going to help me fight that battle to get Primitivo and Tribodrag approved as synonyms for Zinfandel. So I'm hoping that within a couple of years, we can use just a, it'll be approved as a varietal name. But in the meantime, it's a fanciful name. So I was at Hendry in Napa, and I noticed that they had a wine labeled as Primitivo. So they're using clones of Primitivo that are at least 75% or 85% of the Appalachian laws for that. Is that why they're allowed to call it Primitivo? Yes, you can get, there is Primitivo that was imported, Primitivo vines were imported into California in the 80s. And technically, if you plant, if you buy Primitivo vines, then you're supposed to label your wine Primitivo. Not that anybody could prove that it wasn't, though, since the DNA is the same, right? But George Hendry has chosen to call his Primitivo for his own reasons, and a few other people do as well. And so technically, that is the correct thing to do, legally. So I always thought it was a political thing where people didn't want to label things Primitivo and then send them off to Italy, or Italy, we didn't want Italy labeling things Zinfandel and importing them to the U.S. Is there politics involved in that between TTP and Europe, or is it, or is it just... The politics, bureaucracy. the politics is between California Zinfandel producers and the federal government and Italy. So the way it happened was that back in uh, probably around 1990 or something, when we confirmed that Primitivo and Zinfandel were the same thing. No, it was a little later than that. There was a petition to the TTB, which was ATF at the time. It was BATF. Now it's TTB. So a petition was submitted to the federal government to get Primitivo approved as a synonym for Zinfandel. There was a tremendous opposition from California Zinfandel producers because such a large amount of Primitivo wine is produced in southern Italy that the California Zen producers were concerned that there would be competition on American store shelves 
for their wine that the Italian producers would want to label their Primitivo Zinfandel and that it would damage the market for the American producers. I wrote a letter. I had written a letter when that petition was first filed. I had written a letter to the BATF at the time saying that my scientific opinion was that they were the same variety. And boy, I was called on the carpet by a lot of California producers and asked to reconsider my words. And didn't I want to maybe qualify that in some way? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, not really, but you know, I mean, there might be some, the way I finally did qualify it was by saying, yes, California's Infandel has been diverged from Italian Primitivo for some years and that there probably are some slight clonal differences. And so I would not say that they were 100% identical because two clones in the same variety never are 100% identical. So I walked it back that far, but I never retracted my letter. And so that is why ever since that time, Primitivo and Zinfandel have been listed as separate varieties by the United States government regulators of wine. But if you go to the European Union and you look at their list of varieties that are approved for use on wine and the accepted synonyms, Zinfandel and Primitivo are listed as synonyms. So then what happened was back in 2004, the United States government signed a memorandum of understanding with the European Union about wine labeling. And they agreed to respect each other's wine labeling regulations. So that means that if an Italian Primitivo producer wants to label his or her wine Zinfandel, which is perfectly okay under EU regulations, and then that wine gets imported to the United States, and that label gets reviewed by the United States government regulators, because that label meets complies with the regulations in the EU, the U.S. government has to accept it. So now that means that wine being produced in Italy can be labeled Zinfandel, can be imported into the United States, and can be found on the store shelves right next to California Zinfandel. So they're both labeled Zinfandel. But then you have a California producer like George Hendry, who has planted something that came into this country as Primitivo, and he is not legally allowed to label it as Zinfandel. So it kind of backfired on the California producers. So I am curious on the marketing benefits. So you have Zinfandel, you have Primitivo, and you have Triple Drag, the fanciful name. Have you seen a different marketing benefit for calling it Triple Drag, the fanciful name versus Primitivo versus Zinfandel? Have you, or have you talked with others that you've gotten an impression that it matters? If we had labeled our Zinfandel, how many... Similarly labeled wines would it be on the shelf next to, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, art wine, we have kind of a niche following anyway. We're really small. And so we labeled ours Tribidrag, knowing full well that the American wine market has no idea what Tribidrag is. But we have a mailing list and we simply explain to all of them what Tribidrag is and they say, okay, we'll buy it. So, you know, it's it's not like Sutter Home is trying to sell something called (laughs) Tribidrag. You know, it, it's Legere Meredith who has 100 cases. We're trying to sell it and we explain what it means. So simple. Does it sell better to relative to your other wines, do you think, because of the name? No, it sells the same. All of our wines, you know, we, we just have our following and our wines, they're not on supermarket shelves for the most part. Most of our wine, we just sell direct to consumer. We just, we ship it all over the country. And so it, I don't think it ever sees a supermarket shelf, any of them. Awesome. Mm. 
Yeah, we focus on the business side of wine here at uh, X Chateau. So always love talking about the business applications and would love to explore a little bit the implications and the business implications of DNA typing for these grape varieties. I can imagine at the macro level that all this research done, especially around Zinfandel, really elevated Croatian wines and Primitivo from Puglia. Do you see it as a way of reviving historic varieties through association with more famous varieties? Well, it certainly has been a boost for the Croatian producers. A lot of them, and they're fully aware of this, and they like to point out that what they have is Infandel. And some of them are even labeling their wines Infandel. It has really, it has put Croatia on the map. It was kind of a backwater post-communist place that maybe had nice beaches, but was never any place that you look to for wine. Now it's a wine tourism destination. There are a number of Mediterranean cruises now that stop. They stop at Split and they go look at that vineyard where we found the, the very first Zinfandel in Croatia that has become a tourist stop now. And some of the wineries in the vicinity now get a lot of visitors off those cruises. So for Croatia, I think it's been a shot in the arm. It kind of has put them on the map. I think DNA typing in general, it's kind of a deep background thing. I mean, it helps in that DNA typing has helped people to discover knowledge, to discover truth, to find out where some of our classic wine grapes came from. It has helped some people craft better stories about their wine. Knowing where it came from makes it more interesting sometimes. DNA typing has not generally been a business enhancer any more than any other scientific knowledge has. It's basic, it's knowledge. And to the extent that knowledge is useful in business, well, it's useful. One thing it has done is that it has maybe given some people in more marginal grape growing locations, some better ideas about what might grow well in their areas. There are some places that maybe are not warm enough for Cabernet Sauvignon because Cabernet Sauvignon has a fairly high heat requirement to ripen its fruit. But knowing that Cabernet Sauvignon descended directly from Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Franc ripens with less heat and might be more suitable for cooler areas, I think that has helped some producers in cooler areas look at Cab Franc with maybe a new way of looking at it, thinking that they by relating it to Cabernet Sauvignon, maybe that that might help them market Cab Franc better. On the micro level, like, uh, when we're talking about clones, though, you, you do see some producers either label their wines like Wente Clone Chardonnay or the Schrader single clone Cabernet Sauvignon bottlings. I'm curious on the value of doing that from your perspective in terms of that delineation. Is that, it seems like a little bit of inside baseball, but they're using it as like a, is it just marketing or is there something more than that? Because as you said earlier, like more than just the clone, it's the site, it's a whole bunch of factors that go into that. I think it's largely marketing. I think it's a distinction. Everybody wants a distinction, right? You always want to set yourself apart. And if you have a specific clone of Pinot, it's going to help you set yourself apart from somebody who doesn't or somebody who doesn't even know what clone they have. That's not to say that it's going to be better or even that anybody can detect any difference in the wine. But there's something different on the label on that that just helps you tell your story. You know, selling wine is all about telling your story. Yeah, I mean, that's I also think of Adaragi and uh, Kumea River. They talk about the, the gumboot. Pinot Noir clone from that someone jumped over the fence and grabbed it or jumped over the wall and grabbed it from DRC. Like how much does that really 
matter versus getting clonal selection from UC Davis, right? And like, but they tell a story with it. It feels like a lot of just marketing to me. I'm not sure because all the other parameters aren't the same from the DRC plots to New Zealand. Some clones do have distinctions and they've been proven. But if somebody just walks into a Kurt Rochi vineyard or a Chateau Neuf de Pop vineyard and grabs some cuttings, they don't really know that that's any different because it often hasn't really been proven, but they hear it anecdotally, and so they pass the story along. But then often what happens is it gets to California or it gets to Australia, and the trail gets lost, and, you know, it's like playing telephone, right? The story gets passed along from one person to another. Pretty soon the story gets so distorted that nobody's really sure what the truth is anymore. So consider that to not be very substantive, Okay, that's what, that was what my guess was, but it, it does make for good storytelling, good branding. Yeah. And so what are the costs associated with DNA typing of the grape varieties and, and who pays for them? Right now, DNA typing is done in a few places, usually at research institutions. Actually, I think there might be one or two commercial laboratories that are doing it. But we started a service when I was still at UC Davis. And then when I left in 2003... My right-hand person carried it on and transferred it to a different department where he went to work and developed it into a commercial service. So it's now offered by Foundation Plant Services at UC Davis. And the last I heard, the cost for a single sample was $300. And that if you sent in multiple samples, the cost per sample would go down a little bit. But it's a fairly expensive thing. And the person who wants the information pays. It's not publicly supported in any way. So if a grower wants to know what he or she has in their vineyard, then they pay per sample. And I'm not sure how it's done in other places. I I don't know. I think some other countries do have some commercial services going now, too. Can you pay a test for it to create your own clone? I'm curious on, because I can imagine people wanting to do that. It's like, oh, like some of the... Mount Eden clones or Wente clones just became colloquial, like, hey, that's where I got the clippings from. But I'm curious on, can you make your own clone? No, no. Generally, the DNA testing service simply tells you what variety you have. It would take hundreds and hundreds of markers and much, much more time and money to try to determine whether what you had was a distinctive clone. So the question that gets asked is, what variety is it? And there is now a database of well over a thousand varieties. And if a sample that comes in doesn't match anything in the database, then they simply go and start asking people in other countries. The data is generally public among researchers. They are always very happy to share this information. The only way you can have what you might call your own clone is that if you import something and pay for the importation and testing. So Foundation Plant Services at UC Davis is also a federally approved importation station for grapes. There's also one in Oregon. I think there's also one in Missouri and maybe one at Cornell. And so that means that some grape cuttings are brought in from another country and they're kept in isolation, and they're tested for all known grapes and diseases using molecular methods. And it's only when they have been shown to be free of those known diseases that they are then released to growers. Now, if that comes in as a public importation, either because a researcher wanted to bring it in, 
or because somebody sponsored it, a private individual sponsored it, didn't want to retain any rights to it, then it becomes generally available and goes out to commercial nurseries and any grower can buy it. But sometimes a producer wants to keep it to themselves. And so they will pay all the costs involved in bringing it in and testing it over. It takes, it takes several years to do this. And then at a price, they can retain proprietary rights to it. Got it. Okay. So there, okay. So there's, but it's quite cost intensive, it sounds like. Here, for every time we have a guest, we ask them to do a wrap up where we ask them to give us a lasting trend in a fizzling fat. So a lasting trend is something that you think is going to keep going on in the wine industry and the, and the fizzling fat is something that was popular and is now fading. If you have any takeaways around DNA testing or labeling, I'd love to hear those, but you could, you could open up to anything in the wine industry as well. Well, the lasting trend is to know what you have in the ground, and that will certainly continue. There's a lot of interest in new varieties. Not, I don't mean new varieties. There's a lot of interest in growing varieties that haven't been grown here before because, you know, there are thousands of grape varieties. If you look at Jancis Robinson's Wine Grapes book, that very, very thick book, they looked at every variety every wine grape variety known to be commercially grown in the world today, and that is 1,368. Now, there are many more, but they aren't commercially grown. They may exist only in university collections or something like that. So there are thousands of varieties. In the wine business worldwide, there are only 100 varieties that are really important. And in California, we probably have no more than that. So there are many, many more varieties that we might want to consider growing here in California or that they might want to consider growing in other parts of the country. And to the extent that some of those new varieties might be imported and planted, it's going to be very important to make sure you know what you've got. And so the DNA testing will certainly play a role in that. The other lasting fad will simply be the use of molecular technology in grape growing and winemaking. DNA typing is just one facet of that, but there are certainly other things like understanding the yeast in your wine. Those are all analyzed by DNA methods. Understanding the spoilage organisms in your wine, understanding the pests and diseases that damage your grapevines. Modern molecular technology plays a role in all of that. Understanding which phylloxera strain has overcome the resistance of an old rootstock. I mean, all of that now is amenable to scientific investigation and questions can be asked and answered using molecular technology. So that's the lasting. Yeah. So that's a lasting trend in terms of things that, is there anything that you think is fading away? Like that is changing now that we have DNA testing, the, I mean, exampleography is pretty much gone or is that, is there something that you think is fizzling away? The DNA testing is now routine. Okay. That's established. That is no longer, it's no longer in the forefront of research. What is in the forefront of research is something called genomics. Genomics is looking at every gene in an organism and figuring out what it does. And that goes way, way, way beyond simply DNA testing. It means saying, how many genes are there in Cabernet Sauvignon? And, and how many genes are there that make Cabernet Sauvignon different than Merlot? And which of those genes are important in flavor? And which of those genes are affected by their environment? So that's modern genomics is very, very powerful. And that is something that is still on the rise. That's a powerful tool where its best days are yet to come. I think in the next 20 years, we'll just see some really revolutionary findings coming out of that. 
Peter and I want to thank you for spending so much time with us covering so many topics from Cabernet to Zinfandel to proper vernacular, scientific vernacular for grape varieties and clones. We really appreciate it. It was very insightful. Oh, it's my pleasure. I always like talking about it. You said all these details that I remember. And as you rightly mentioned, I've talked about all this stuff many, many times. And so it's not hard for me to remember the details because I pretty much lived them. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.